This is Salt and Spine. I hope that this book has the ability to have people look at condiments in general and, you know, thinking outside the box of a recipe and thinking about how to add multiple versions of flavor in one punch. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Vivian Howard. Now, Vivian wears many hats, mom, chef, storyteller, television personality, all of which you'll hear more about in today's conversation. Most recently, Vivian is the author of her second cookbook, This Will Make It Taste Good, A New Path to Simple Cooking. Now, Vivian Howard was born in a rural town in North Carolina called Deep Run, which was the inspiration for her first award-winning cookbook, Deep Run Roots. That book took home four awards from the International Association of Culinary Professionals, including its Cookbook of the Year and Julia Child First Book Awards. She describes that first cookbook as a love letter to a place, much different from her latest book, which is focused on simple home cooking and easy tricks and ingredients to brighten up tried-and-true recipes. As a kid, Vivian says she couldn't wait to leave Deep Run and dreamt of living in the city, so she did. She moved to New York after college, where she studied English and worked in restaurants as a server and later as a cook. Though Vivian moved to New York to become a writer, she ended up opening a soup delivery business with her now husband. Even though she was offered investment to open a brick-and-mortar soup shop, Vivian decided to return to North Carolina, help her sister open a deli. It wasn't long before Vivian switched gears. This town needed a proper restaurant with seasonal ingredients, an innovative menu, and an homage to the beauty of Southern cooking. So she opened her restaurant, Chef and the Farmer. Now, Vivian is also the host of A Chef's Life on PBS. It's now in its sixth season. That show earned her a Peabody Award. Her latest show, Somewhere South, premiered on PBS in 2020 and dives deep into the culinary culture and traditions of the American South. Today, Vivian runs three restaurants. Chef and the Farmer is still running, serving Southern-inspired food. Her pizzeria, Benny's Big Time, in Wilmington, serves up pies, pasta, and risottos. And her latest venture, Le Noir, in Charleston, focuses on bringing Southern food into the future, evolving the food of the agricultural rural South. We've got a great show for you today. A few excerpted recipes from This Will Make It Taste Good are available on our website. Our kitchen correspondent, Sarah Varney, is back. She's making one of Vivian's kitchen heroes, the little green dress, with a friend halfway around the globe. Plus, we put Vivian to the test in our signature culinary game. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Vivian Howard joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Vivian. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And and we're here to talk about your work, your life, your your newest cookbook. Um, this will make it taste good. And your first cookbook, Deep Run Roots. Um, and we'll come back to those in a minute. But we always like to start by talking just a little bit about how you got to where you are today. So I think if folks are are fans of yours or know of your work, they probably know about your life story a little bit too and that you grew up in deep run but can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what it meant to you as a child and the role that food played in your life sure uh, i grew up in uh, rural eastern north carolina in a little farming community called deep run and my parents were tobacco farmers and i was the youngest of four girls and my earliest memory is just thinking like i got to get the hell out of here okay. uh, I not I had a great home life. I just, you know, I saw on TV 
people living in cities and I wanted to, I wanted a piece of that. So I, I, I left home when I was 14 to go to boarding school. And when I got to boarding school, I realized like, wow, a lot of these people are from the South, but there's something different between they're like Southern and I'm like country. And so it, it, it further kind of solidified the, the shame that I felt around coming from this very rural in many ways in my mind at the time, backward farming community. And that became one of, one of my hangups like where I came mm-hmm. from and not liking it, I guess. And so yeah. I moved to New York after college and I wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. I moved to New York to hopefully be a journalist, but ended up working in restaurants because I had always waited tables during college. And just by like virtue of, I guess, fate, I, I stumbled into this restaurant that was getting ready to open and it was called Voyage. And uh-huh the concept of the restaurant was Southern food via Africa. And this was in 2001. So, you know, that's something that we, we talk about now and that we should certainly talk about more, but in 2001 to have a restaurant in Manhattan (laughs) hinged on that idea, it was really out of the box. And the chef uh, Scott Barton was an incredible storyteller. And I, I, became very enthusiastic and inspired about the stories behind the food that uh, we were serving at Voyage. Food had always been something in my family that, you know, it was our only social activity. You know, we ate together as a family. When we were eating, we were planning what we were going to eat next. And we had a big garden and, and as farmers, food was always central, but it didn't feel special. Like we did not exalt it. And so that's, I guess, kind of how I got where I am. No. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. You wanted to be a writer, a journalist. I, I think I've heard you say you wanted to be, you wanted to take Katie Couric's spot, right? You wanted to I thought I was be an, an anchor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Did you, did you study journalism or communications in college? I was an uh, English language major, but I interned at the local television station and got an internship at CBS Sunday morning and spent a summer there working there. And so it gave me false hope that I might actually get a job. Sure. Yeah. And you, and you pivoted at, at one point, right? You're working in advertising. You made that pivot, started working in restaurants, when did it sort of align for you that food was going to perhaps become a career? Was it in New York or was it that moment when, and you can talk about this, when you moved back to where you're from to open a restaurant? Uh, definitely when I was in New York, like I okay. was working as a server at Voyage and then I started working in the kitchen before my shift at night, just as a means to hopefully translate that experience into a career in food writing. But I found that I really loved making stuff. I loved the camaraderie of the kitchen, the fact that we all worked toward a common goal and I was good at it. And I think, you know, we all want to do things that we're good at. So I just kept cooking and worked in a number of restaurants and also started a little soup business with my now husband called Viv's Kitchen. I was incredibly creative. (laughs) (laughs) And so at at that point, I I had gone so far down the food path. And I'm sure you've heard other people say this, when you're in this world, it's really hard to turn around and get out. So I was like, all in. Yeah. So 
help me understand if I'm getting this timing right. But at, at one point, your parents, they buy a building, right? Or acquire a building near your hometown and say, come back and open a restaurant. Can you talk about that decision and what that was like for you after having, you know, for many years said, I, I needed to get away from where I'm from and not going to go back? Sure, sure. So that suit business that I uh, mentioned. We had gotten a lot of traction and interest in it and Time Out New York wanted to write about us, but we were making the soup in our apartment in Harlem and chilling it down in the bathtub. So like yeah. Time Out New York couldn't write about that. And we had two clients, soup clients that wanted to invest in a legitimate storefront for us. So basically I told my family, I'm, I'm going to actually stay in New York and I'm going to open this soup business. And they were like, ah, hell nah. No, no, no. We never thought that you would put down actual roots there. And so they, it's actually far more complicated than I've um, said in one sentence on TV. Uh, I was, I, I moved here to help my sister open a sandwich shop in Delhi. And, and, then, and they had bought this building in downtown Kinston. It's a 10,000 square foot building. It cost $75,000. If that okay. tells you anything about the, you know, the economic state of the area. Sure. Um, and so and the intention was to help her do this, maybe make a little money and then decide what was next. But I can't really explain what happened when we got here, <laughs> except that I became more invested and involved in it. And I decided that this town did not need another sandwich shop. It needed a, a, a proper restaurant where you could go and have, you know, thoughtful food um, made with local ingredients. And so I, I never meant to stay, but then I did. Yeah, and, and opened your restaurants and you'd been working, you know, in the kitchens in New York for a while. You opened your own restaurant. How, were you writing throughout that period? Was like writing and storytelling something you were doing or does that sort of come back into the picture after you opened your restaurant? So that very much went away. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of all or nothing. And I felt like because I had failed at that in New York, that, you know, perhaps I wasn't as good at it, or I didn't need to do it as much as I thought. So I just like packed it away. And went about, you know, trying to become the best chef I could be, trying to make sure that our, our restaurant reached people that didn't, you know, necessarily live in Eastern North Carolina. So I like was super focused on that. But I was, I never stopped like thinking and dreaming about being able to be a storyteller again. And I, um, I, had this experience uh, where my neighbors gave me this bag of collard kraut. And I, at the time I was reading Sandor Katz's The Art of Fermentation book. And I thought, um, oh my gosh, like I was reading this book that every hip and like cutting edge chef in the country is cooking from right now. And my geezer neighbors down the road just dropped a bag of actual kraut on my doorstep. And, and so I just was like, my mind just like exploded. And I went and asked if they would let me watch them make kraut. And they said they would, they weren't going to do it till a year from then because they only do it when the farmer's almanac says the sun and the moon are not in the sign of the bowels and all kinds of, you know, folklore. Sure. Um, and so I waited a year 
And then I went and watched them make kraut. And I, I, that was, and then I wrote about it. And that was the first thing I had written um, other than a check in probably about a decade. Wow. And, and at that point, did you sort of go into overdrive then? I mean, because then you start to come up with the idea for your TV show and, and put that together and like it sort of spirals from there, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that experience just opened my eyes to all these, you know, cool traditions and, you know, superstitions and folklore and history around food, like in my own backyard, the place that I thought was the most boring place on the planet. And so I became, you know, obsessed with learning more about these stories, writing them down. And the show was, um, I wanted it to be a documentary just about the people and the makers and the home cooks in Eastern North Carolina. Um, and, but that's not what it ended up being necessarily. Uh, but yeah, I was from that moment on, I like was a dog with a bone. Like I, I was going to, tell stories either on the page or on the screen or just hold people by the elbow and make them listen to me, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. And, and you poured yourself into that work. And I think I've read originally that you weren't sure if you wanted to write a cookbook, right? You sort of thought that cookbooks and recipes could be somewhat limiting for what you wanted to do. How did you sort of get to what ultimately became your first cookbook, Deep Run Roots? Um, well, for, for the show, so A Chef's Life is, um, the show that we are, have been talking about. And like every, every episode of that show is about one ingredient. Mm -hmm. And when we were, um, planning the first season, I wrote little essays about each of the ingredients that we did on the show. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. I'm like, I'm connecting this ingredient to some personal experience. And this feels like, this could be bigger than this. And, um, you know, when the show came out, I got the opportunity, a bunch of agents reached out to me and, you know, said, we, you should do a book. Everybody with the cooking show does a book. And, you know, you don't even have to write a proposal because you have a TV show. Just give this a couple sentences about what you want it to be. And, um, and I thought, oh, okay. So I get to write, but it's going to be a cookbook. And so I can combine these, you know, at that point, I thought, okay, I've got to write a cookbook. And at the time, I was being compared to both uh, Julia Child and Paula Dean. And I had never thought that I, um, I never really thought about writing an actual cookbook. And so I looked at the work of those two women and tried to draw a, uh, a, a line joining the two and wrote a proposal for a book, a very long proposal for a book that looked like the intersection of Julia Child and Paula Dean. And it was horrible. And, and my, the agent that I chose, uh, David Black, I chose him because he's the only one who told me I had to write a, a proposal. And uh, he, and he was like, this is okay. I'm sure we can sell it, but I really think you can do better. And I said, don't send it to anybody. Don't send it to anybody. Let me write another one. And so that that's where I took those essays that I had you know, written for A Chef's Life and expanded this into a cookbook, but also something that I think is much more narrative than a lot of a lot of cookbooks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I was laughing this morning, because I tried to pick up both of your books with one hand. And I'm like, this is <laughs> impossible, because it's, it's such a large book, Deep Run Roots. And we talk with a lot of cookbook authors, who often, you know, are having to cut things. What, what was your process sort of like, were you able to just immediately get this much 
uh, this many pages, this much space to do what you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I had never written, I hadn't written very much. So uh-huh. I, I didn't, I didn't even know, uh, this is so embarrassing, but I didn't even know how to put the page count on my document. Uh-huh, sure. and, and so I just started, um, writing, I wrote the, uh, the summer squash chapter first and then the, the summer, the sweet corn chapter. And I sent it to my editor, um, and I was so excited, uh, feeling very confident. I sent it to him. He responded like a couple days later and said, thanks for this. I'm going to cook from it this weekend. Um, and then the next week he emailed me and said he was leaving Little Brown. Okay. And, and I thought, oh my God, this is, this was so bad. He literally quit his job. <laughs> and, and, um, so eventually I was assigned a new editor, uh, Mike Zerban, who's my editor and uh, this will make it taste good as well. And I was so guarded at that point that I wrote basically the rest of the book without sending him a word of it. And so when I, I sent it on the day of my deadline, um, he got this, what was an actually like an 800 page book. Now it's 600. Okay. We cook like we cut, we cut whole chapters from it in an effort to uh, make it smaller. Um, and neither one of us had any idea that it was that long yeah. and, <laughs> until he got it. And he was like, Oh, holy shit. <laughs> sure. Well, and you've said that it, it came so easily to you, at least in comparison to your second cookbook, you, you wrote, I think, I think I'm, I have a quote here and I think it's from the intro of your new book in which you said, writing that writing deep run roots was easy and it was a catharsis that you had saved your whole life for what was it really that easy it just sort of came so naturally to you yeah you know i hate to say that but it's true you know in many yeah. ways i had done all of this preparation in making the show in that you know every episode was about an ingredient so i did a lot of research around the ingredient that allowed me to write the wisdom pieces um you know how to treat this ingredient things like that i attached you know, every ingredient to a story from my childhood or from our region's history. So that was really easy. I mean, I think all of, you know, my life experience, I was writing about that. Um, and the recipes were in many cases, historical, you know, texts that had, had just not been written down recipes that, you know, were so simple, no one ever thought to write them down. And in other cases, they were recipes that we'd been serving at Chef and the Farmer for a decade. So I, in many ways, had done the research and the work ahead of time, and and the book was just the opportunity for me to just spill it all out. One of the things that it it does so well, it it being Deep Run Roots, your first book, is is you know diving into a really sort of regional cuisine. I mean, you write, I think, in the intro that it's a Southern cookbook, but it's also not a Southern cookbook in that it's really, really regional and. And when it was published, was sort of coming at a time where there was, I think, a growing interest in regional cooking, both within the country and within international cuisines as well. Did you anticipate that there would be such an interest in the cuisine of your childhood region when you were putting your show or the book together in the way that you've seen? No way. No way. I mean, everyone that we talk to about the show, you know, like networks and, you know, trying to get it in front of people, they're like, nobody even knows what this place is. You know, it's the last place on earth anybody's going to be interested in. And, you know, that's really the way that I felt as a kid and a young adult. And that's the way I felt about the food of Eastern North Carolina when presented to the 
when presented with the food of the port cities in the South, for instance, um, I felt like, oh, no one's going to care about this. It's, it's so mundane. It's so basic. Um, and, you know, it was really Edna Lewis's book, uh, The Taste of Country Cooking, that showed me um, for the first time I saw someone exalting, you know, the food of, of rural people in the South and the, you know, eating with the seasons and and preserving a lot of your food. And she she was not ashamed of it. She was, you know, celebrating it. And so that was the first kind of like, okay, if if Miss Lewis did it and people were interested, maybe, maybe Eastern North Carolina matters too. And, and over the past few years, I, I know you've talked about this a little bit and written about the the divide between rural and urban that we sometimes see in the country, often see in the country. <laughs> Always. See. How has your your work as a chef, as a storyteller, as a writer, how have you sort of found that food plays within that divide? Has has that has your thinking around that changed as you've seen success in these ways? Um well I mean I think food plays into the rural experience in a really interesting way. Um, I think my my personal experience is is I think unique because I grew up in a very rural place. I felt shame ar- about, around being from there and of there. I moved to a city. I very much considered myself urban, and then I moved back and have made most of my you know adult life in this rural place. So I really kind of understand the sensibilities of of both groups, and I see that uh, people in rural places whether they're here or not, they feel shame around their traditions. They do feel like they're basic. They do feel like they're less than. And the experience of a chef's life and and deep run roots, like really raising up these things that are such a big part of our lives that we have felt shame around, you know, very simple foods like sweet potatoes roasted in their jackets and then, you know, slid in your pocket for your afternoon snack when you're working on the farm, like highlighting something like that and making it feel special. I've found that that experience gives people in, in rural places pride in their traditions and therefore pride in themselves. And when we have pride in our selves and our place, then we feel as if we want to invest in that more, whether it's emotionally or financially. And so I think um, anything that we can do in rural places to give people pride around being rural is really, um, is, is, is a win-win for everyone. And food is so important here. Uh, so it, it's, it's easy to do that. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Vivian Howard. But first, our kitchen correspondent, Sarah Varney, usually cooks with friends or family when she tries out recipes from our author's cookbooks. But this week, she made the recipe Little Green Dress, one of Vivian Howard's flavor heroes, with a friend far away, very far away, in Singapore. Here's Sarah. My friend Shravanthi Devabaktuni moved to Singapore a few years ago, and during our frequent WhatsApp video calls, I often gawk at the healthy green plants perched around her apartment and outside the windows. When we decided to cook together, the trickiest part was figuring out the 12-hour time difference. Hi, Shervanti. What time is it there? Excellent. It is uh, 9, 10 a.m. in the morning. Okay, it's 9, 10 p.m. here on Saturday night (laughs) in New York. We decided to make Vivian Howard's vinegary dressing and then plop it on jammy eggs and asparagus. 
breakfast for Shravanti, and dinner for me. Our shopping list is simple. Shallots, garlic, red wine vinegar, Casta Veltrano olives, if I'm saying that correctly, capers, anchovy fillets, fresh parsley and mint, olive oil, lemon, and hot sauce. Shravanti is going to shop in Singapore, and I'm heading out to the Berkshires to get my ingredients. We've been driving around near Chatham, New York, going for a hike with the dog, and we saw this place called the Berry Farm. So I thought I'd stop in and see if they have what we need for this recipe. It's a beautiful little farm on the side of the road. Hi. <laughs> so I'm Sarah. Can you That's tell us your name? Joe. Joe. Joe Gilbert. Joe Gilbert. I'm the owner. 39 years. Wow. And how did your family come to start having this farm? I bought it. I started it. Joe and I are standing in the farm stand, surrounded by barrels of produce. He says May is the worst time of the year for produce here. The winter vegetables are all gone, and he's waiting for the early summer harvest. Asparagus are just coming on. Asparagus, rhubarb, ramps, which were gone already. We don't even have any left today. So the season's just starting again. Just starting, okay. So sometimes this asparagus, though, looks quite strong. It doesn't look very thin. I guess I would think spring thin. asparagus would be... You don't want thin asparagus. It's woody. Actually, what brings more on market is the thicker stuff. It's more expensive. We got the shallots, the garlic. Now we need parsley and the mint. And you said those you do grow here. Italian parsley. Great, perfect. And we need two bags of the mint. That's a lot of mint. I know. Okay, all right. But it's going to get blitzed in the Cuisinart, I think. Okay, mint. Okay, perfect. And parsley. Perfect. That's that. There's 24 acres here at Berry Farm, and Joe takes me inside a greenhouse where Swiss chard, kale, and the mint and parsley that I just bought are all growing. So in here, there's a hydroponic. This is Swiss chard and kale. Wow. Oh, beautiful. Taste the stem. Just because everybody thinks the stems are tough. The stems, when we grow them this way, are Oh my gosh, you can just nibble at The kale stems are sweet and tender. Then Joe takes me outside to where asparagus are beginning to grow in pots. Here's asparagus. Okay. It, it's, a, it's a great thing to have in your yard. And you can harvest asparagus anytime from now till October. Does it grow pretty easily? Is it, it grows pretty, pretty It's pretty easy. It's what not about a hard squirrels? Time. We have a problem with squirrels <laughs> I'm eating not sure. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure what your chipmunks or squirrels will eat. Well, thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. Across the globe in Singapore, Shravanti started her shopping at a buzzing wet market. I am currently shopping for ingredients at Tiang Baru Market, which is a very popular market uh, that a lot of locals go to. The market has everything from flowers to plants to fresh produce, to meat, to fish. There is so much beautiful, just stunning Art Deco uh, architecture. So this was a planned community and all the buildings were built between World War I and World War II. Okay, next stop. Ah, I'm so excited. I found flat leaf parsley. I was slightly worried I wouldn't find it. Um, this parsley is not a very commonly used herb in um, Asian cooking. I am having trouble finding shallots, however. Uh, they're not as common here as might be in other places, so I might have to figure out an alternative or see where else I can go to to find some shallots for the recipe. 
okay, I've run out of energy. Um, I'm still missing the shallots. That's the last thing I need to get. Luckily, I was able to look online and see Cold Storage, which is a really popular grocery store in Singapore. Think of it as a big American supermarket. Has shallots. They apparently come from Indonesia. So I'm going to order those online um, to be delivered. Now I'm excited to make this with Sarah. Hello. Good morning. Good evening. I love that you're wearing your avocado pajamas. Thank they're, you very much. They are so They're cute. so comfortable. Also, I feel like they're very appropriate for our cooking together. So it's already the future there in Singapore. How's the future? Can you tell me? <laughs> the future is very good, Sarah. So you are going to make the little green dress for breakfast. I'm going to make it for dinner. And then we're going to make yeah. the eggs and the asparagus. Shivanthi ended up ordering asparagus and shallots online, and in Singapore, they were delivered in an hour. I snickered when she showed me how tiny her shallots were. The shallots? They're teeny tiny. My shallots are much bigger than your shallots, Shivanthi. <laughs> Everything is bigger in the U.S. We peel the shallots and garlic and put them in a food processor and give them a good blitz. Here, I'll do mine first and then you do yours. Or should we try and do it together? Cross-continental Cuisinarting. Yeah, I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Now we stir them in a small bowl with red wine vinegar. I don't usually do onions in the Cuisinart. Oh my God, I can't see. Now we're going to mince the pitted olives, capers, and anchovies. I just ate an olive. That's why I can't speak. I want to see what your anchovies look like. Okay, this is the can. It's just cento. Oh, nice. Mine are very beautiful looking Ortiz. Ooh, that looks really nice. You want to know how much they were? How much? It's the one downside of living in a place where everything comes from far away. So I, I kept the receipt. So the anchovy fillets are more than 15 bucks. Wow, for one thing of anchovies? Yeah, for one bottle of anchovies. We minced these pricey anchovies along with the pitted olives and capers and set them aside. And then we minced the parsley and mint and mix the herbs into the olive mixture. This is probably the most involved dressing I've ever made. Well, what's nice about it is you just, you make it and then you have it in the fridge for a long time. Oh, totally. We mix in half a cup of olive oil, grated lemon zest, and a quarter cup of freshly squeezed lemon juice, and a teaspoon of hot sauce. Ooh, the hot sauce adds a nice little vinegary and beautiful. And yeah. Ooh. Um, okay, so it says stir it all together and let this vinegary puddle of green, that is such an accurate description, sit for a minimum of 30 minutes before you bathe in it. While the dressing marinates, Shravanti and I prepare our jammy eggs and asparagus. So I'm going to prep my asparagus by just snapping the ends. Such a satisfying sound. We used to grow a lot of asparagus when I was growing up in New Hampshire. Oh, okay. We had a big I never garden. had it till I think I moved to the U.S. Yeah? There's no asparagus in India? But they don't have nope. it? Nope. I've never seen it. We blanched the asparagus for about a minute or two and boiled the eggs for about six minutes. Asparagus is done, so you can plate that. Okay. All right, we've got 30 seconds left for the eggs. Perfect. Ooh, oh, my God, they're so runny. Perfect. 
So did you put the eggs on top of the asparagus? I did, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That way we capture the yolk. And I'm going to put a nice dollop of this little green dressing on it. I feel like this is the first time I've made something that actually looks like what's in the picture. Well, I guess bon appetit, Sarah. This is really good. I was a little worried because I have such young, skinny asparagus. But it's got a nice crunch to it. It holds the taste. We nailed it. Totally nailed yeah. it, Shravanti. Oh, my God. Okay, enjoy your breakfast. Thank you. Bye. I had a full jar of dressing that I used for days on end in endless ways. Shivanti sent me a picture of the dressing mixed with potatoes. I plopped it on everything, scrambled eggs, fish, and flatbread. I have a lot of dressings that I make and keep in the fridge, and this one is now firmly in the rotation. That's our kitchen correspondent, Sarah Varney, cooking with a friend in Singapore. She made the little green dress recipe from Vivian Howard's This Will Make It Taste Good. And now back to our conversation with Vivian Howard, author of This Will Make It Taste Good. So your your latest cookbook is This Will Make It Taste Good. Um, you dedicate this book to the, you say, quote, the corners we find ourselves in that force novel and creative ways out. I'm wondering if you can tell us how you decided to dedicate. Is that what that means? Well, I, I I consider myself like a, a problem solver. And I've always said, you know, if you gave me uh, a shopping cart and said, go buy anything in Whole Foods and make anything you want, I would come out with an avocado. Like I would not be able to figure out what to do. So okay. I very much like being, um, uh, I, I like limitations. I like being told you can't do this. Uh, you need to figure out a way to do something else or you need, need to figure out another way to get this done. And I, I feel like that is what I do best. And in this book, um, you know, I, with my first book, I signed a two book deal and I had never, I mean, I couldn't even read page counts. So that tells you <laughs> how much experience I had. Right. And, and I had no, um, no worries that I'd be able to come up with a great idea for a second book. Um, and and then when Deep Run Roots was so successful and I wrote, you know, a thousand page book almost, it was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to actually write about? And what can I write about that A, I want to write about, B, is like authentic to who I am as a cook and a writer and a person and C, that is valuable, like and that people are going to want to read. And, you know, those are, those were really hard questions for me to answer because I had gotten on this wrong track of waking up every morning for a year and reading the Amazon reviews of deep run roots. And, and one of the trends I saw was people wanted more simple recipes. They wanted simple food. They, the recipes were too complicated for them. So I was like, no matter come hell or high water, I'm writing a simple book. And that was like my complete focus. Like how can I write the simplest of simple books? And I looked at all the simple books out there and just my simple mind got really, really bored. And, and I, I, and I started writing, um, you know, a, a book that was, you know, the, the purpose of it was to simple recipes, the way that I cook at home. And I just, it was not speaking to me. Um, and the last chapter in that book, uh, I had titled, this will make it taste good. And it was for all these little condiments that are 
actually the way that I cook. And I kept saying like, hey, if you want to make this recipe at the beginning of the book really tasty, add this. And that is the um, the rock in a hard place I found myself in, like wanting to write this simple book, not being able to, wanting to 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 write something that I was excited about and that I felt valuable. And that forced me to turn the whole book on its head and, and, and write the whole book about that one chapter, if you will. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and just like deep run roots, I mean, the chapters in the book are, are built around, well, in deep run roots, they're singular ingredients. And here we have sort of um, condiments or staple recipes that you call kitchen heroes. Um you also decided to include a number of essays in this book, one of which I think touches on this topic a little bit towards the end. You you write about your editor, Mike, pushing you in your writing process and um, that you originally were thinking about, you know, a narrative cookbook about body image, that you had sort of different ideas about what this cookbook would become. What was that process like of being pushed in a way that it seems like maybe you weren't pushed quite as much with Deep Run Roots because that came a little bit more naturally? Uh, it was so incredibly frustrating because, um, I didn't, I didn't ask permission for anything on Deep Run Roots. <laughs> so uh-huh. when, when I'm like, okay, Mike, this is the book I want to write. I want to write a narrative cookbook about body image. And he's like, that sounds like a pool party about drowning. So no. And, uh-huh. and I'm like, but I think this will be great. And so it it became clear to me that it's not, you know, 100% my decision. Um, And, and he pushed me, but it was like undercover pushing, you know, if somebody pushes me and I can feel it, like I know it, I respond as if I've been pushed, but he was more like nudging, or I would even say ignoring me. Um, And so that type of pushing uh, where I am left with my own thoughts about, how can I make this better? How can I make this more universal? What do I actually want to write about? Um, I think he gave, he gave me the, the opportunity to sit and think of it on my own without, um, putting words or an idea in my mouth. And, and it is a personal book in, in a lot of ways, in a different way than Deep Run Roots was because Deep Run Roots is the food of, of your childhood. There's a lot of personal essays in there. But in this book, you know, we you talk about parenting and your challenges with, with um, balancing um, parenting and career. And I shouldn't say the word balance because I know that you <laughs> push back against that term. But um, but you you have a, a number of essays. Um, another one about you know your dad and um, his relationship with health and diabetes and um, what was it like to sort of have that that type of personal. Um, openness that that I think um, comes through in this book more so than in your first book. Um, I that was the most fun part about writing this book, and this okay. book for me really feels like Deep Run Roots was a love letter to a place, and this feels like a this this was like a, an expression of my personality. Even my voice is different in writing it. You know, it's more matter of fact, more um, uh, humorous. I think. Uh, and writing the essays in this book were really meant to be, uh, very personal, uh, you know, like a look inside my head and my heart. 
Um, and yeah, yeah the, the, you mentioned the essay about my dad and his cereal dieting, dieting. I've never laughed so much as I did writing that. Um, just remembering all the, the, the crazy diets my dad went on and all the rural legends of him rock, walking around our pond in his underwear and <laughs> his work boots. And so I laughed, uh, to almost to the point of sick writing that. And then the essay about it's called a uh, people pleaser. It's mm-hmm. about me, um, you know, being the youngest of four girls and, and really being a, Oh no baby. And that experience and how it shaped the way I interact with the world. And, and it was writing that was like this weird, uh, cathartic therapy when I realized, um, you know, I talk in the end about how I changed my route home from my office. So I didn't have to ride by my restaurant and see how many people I was disappointing on any given night. And like I had rerouted my path, but I never admitted to myself why. And so writing this was like, it saved me a lot of money in therapy and I cried all the way through it. So this book felt really personal writing it, both the the recipes and, you know, pulling back the, the curtain on how I cook at home, how my kids don't like vegetables, how, um, you know, it was, it was a very different experience and an incredibly joyful one. Yeah. And I I think it really comes through in in your writing and your, your essay about your dad had me (laughs) laughing hysterically too, just imagining him and especially in a hotel hallway, like up and down the hall, (laughs) underwear and work boots. (laughs) Dropping a, uh, dropping a penny or a quarter at the end of the hall each time so that he knew how many laps he'd made. I mean, he's, he's, He's got something there. Yeah, I love it. One of my favorite recipes, I've made a number of recipes from your new book, but I haven't made this one, but I'm so drawn to it. It's a single ingredient one is these pickle sickles. Can you tell us briefly about the pickle sickle? I'm so fascinated by that. Yeah, so it's in the can-do kraut chapter where I really um, do a full court press on trying to get people to make kraut at home. Um, and one of the recipes are for these pickle sickles. And when I was a kid, I would go to the skating rink on Sundays and I'd have like, you know, a couple dollars to spend on myself. And my favorite thing to get were these frozen pickle sickles. And basically the skating rink had taken the pickle juice from the jar of giant dills and frozen them in ice cream, uh, ice cube trays and stuck a popsicle stick in it. And I paid a dollar for that. Uh, (laughs) And so in this, uh, in, in this, and this will make it taste good. I freeze the, the kraut juice and it makes a really refreshing, uh, non-sweet popsicle. Yeah. I'm I'm really excited to try that. I also I made a couple of recipes, one of which was the roast chicken toast. And I, I think that's really a great recipe that feels like something you would really get at a restaurant. Like mm-hmm. especially I live in the Bay Area, roast chicken on top of sourdough is like a thing everybody does, <laughs> but that you can really easily recreate in your home using some of those recipes. Um I'm curious what sort of role you think cookbooks like this one uh, play in helping preserve some of these recipes and traditions that you've established as a home cook? I hope that this book has the ability to have people look at condiments in general and, you know, thinking outside the the box of a recipe and thinking about how to add uh, multiple versions of flavor in one punch 
And because, you know, it's really a brilliant way to cook at home, to have these things at your disposal that are at once homemade, not hard to make, but that are an expression of your likes and, and, and your, your taste. And, you know, for me, these are the top 10 things that I, I rely on in my kitchen. And I, I want people to be able to look at those and, and think about themselves and what is it that they're looking for in their kitchen as a means to just streamline, um, our experience in the kitchen and make it more enjoyable and, um, to empower people. Yeah. I'm curious how you, introduce yourself these days or define what you do? Do you say you're a chef? Do you say you're a storyteller? How do you sort of think about what your career has become? That's a great question. I did a um, career fair, a virtual career fair this morning with a bunch of high school students, and I did not know how to introduce myself. Uh, And so I it feels so silly to call yourself a storyteller. Like I, I, I imagine myself in a cloak around a campfire <laughs> in, you know, 1780 Scotland. I'm not that, uh, uh, but I, I would, how would you describe me? That's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I feel like you're sort of all of the above, right? I mean, you're, say- a, you're a chef, you're a storyteller. I would say I never really thought of myself as a chef. Like I think chefs, okay. I think chefs have skills that I don't like. I, I, I don't have, you know, a whole lot of kitchen tools. I don't, um, I, I don't believe in the hierarchy of the kitchen. I, I, I have never been great at food cost and that kind of thing. So I think I'm a, a, a cook. I think uh-huh. I'm a, a, a student. Okay. And, I don't know. I can't, I don't know. I'm a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel that. Yeah. And I I get that, that hesitation around the term storyteller. It's kind of a weird thing to apply to yourself, but it is something you do so wonderfully. So. And I think it's the thing that I do best, whether I'm cooking, you know, whether I'm developing a menu for my restaurant that I'm just telling you, I'm not the chef of, or if (laughs) I'm um, trying to decide what my next cookbook will be, or if I'm trying to pitch a television show, like I do it all like from recipe development to TV show with a story in like the person listening, like what kind of story are they going to hear? What, what do I want them to take away from this meal or from this hour spent in front of the TV? So that's how I approach everything. Um, I, much to my children's chagrin, I also approach parenting that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question before we move into our quick little game that we always end with. Um, we're a show on cookbooks. Of course, we always like to hear if there are, specific cookbooks or authors who have been really important to you in your career? You mentioned Edna Lewis, I know. Are there others that have been really important to you? Uh, definitely Edna Lewis. Um, I, When I was uh, opening Chef and the Farmer and really felt like I had I didn't have the skills or the experience to, to run a restaurant, I poured myself deeply into Ben and Karen Barker's book, Not Afraid of Flavor. Uh, and also the French laundry cookbook. I really think that it, it taught me so many things that I was never able to learn in other restaurants. You know, when you're a, a bottom level cook somewhere, you're not learning to roll a, a foie gras torchon. So right. 
that book um, taught me how to do the things that I knew I should know how to do as a chef, but that I didn't know how to do. Also, The Elements of Taste by Gray Coons and Peter Kaminsky was a huge influence um, to me uh, in in writing about food, just the way that they uh, talk about tastes that push and pull and point and just the, the thinking about taste in in that with that paradigm in mind was hugely influential and the flavor Bible. Like Mm -hmm. I can tell you the, the maybe first three years that I ran the restaurant, I, every time I got, you know, new ingredients in for the season, I went in there and I looked up uh, squash and I saw all the things they said went with it. And and then I came up with a dish that was like a really important book for me too. Yeah. Yeah. That's one we hear a lot. It's a, a wonderful resource. Um, so we always end with a little game. So I thought we would play a game today, uh, borrowing from this will make it taste good. So we have four stacks of cards here. Um, and I feel sort of terrible making you play this game now that you just said you go into Whole Foods and are asked to make something and you come out with an avocado. Yeah. <laughs> sort of what we're going to do here a little bit. Okay. Um, but we'll let you draw uh, the cards that are interesting to you and then tell us how you might use one of your kitchen heroes to convert that into an amazing dish. Oh, I can do that. Okay. You're giving giving me parameters and that's great. Got it. Okay. So our options are, we have proteins, self-explanatory. We have vegetables, flavor, which is herbs, spices, that that sort of flavoring agents. And then the secret ingredient pile, which is, um, sometimes more obscure, sometimes just kind of random ingredients. So you can, maybe we'll play two rounds. You can draw any number of cards you want to make a little a little basket, like a chopped style basket for yourself and tell us how you would convert it into a recipe. Okay, so let's start with um, a vegetable. Okay, from the middle. Okay, we have cabbage. Okay, uh, how about a... Pre- <laughs> That's great, I just had cabbage for lunch. Yeah. Um, you want a protein to go with a protein. it? Protein. Okay. Let's see. We've got turkey. Okay, I've got it right now. I literally, I swear to God, you're not gonna believe this. I literally just cooked with these two things to make myself lunch. So Oh really? Okay. <laughs> with a flavor hero from this will make it taste good. And wow, okay. Um, so I would take ground turkey and R-rated onions from this will make it taste good, which are just deeply caramelized onions. Um, I yeah. might even add uh, quirky furky from this will make it taste good, which is a, uh, a version of furikake, Japanese furikake. So uh, ground turkey, quirky furky, R-rated onions, um, an egg, uh, maybe uh, s- some salt, uh, a few breadcrumbs, make a meatball. And okay. then... Cabbage, uh, start in a, I would caramelize the cabbage with, uh, olive oil and garlic, get it really nice and, and brown. And then, um, take a little bit of leftover potato soup, which is kind of what made my lunch possible. Add (laughs) add it to the caramelized cabbage and, um, actually, no, add it, heat it up and cook the meatballs in the potato soup. And then serve all of that over the cabbage. And what it ended up looking like and tasting like was like beef stroganoff, but there were no noodles. The cabbage acted like the noodles and the meatballs, um, although not beef, they were made out of turkey. And they had this like creamy sauce that looked like a stroganoff sauce, but it was actually a, a leftover broccoli and potato soup. 
Wow, I love that. That sounds delicious. You just the cards aligned for you, and I'm also <laughs> so happy because we do cabbage. And I thought, well, you have a whole chapter on can do kraut, and I thought we'd go that direction. I love that you took it in a, a different direction. No, I cook cabbage every time I go to the grocery store. I buy a head of cabbage because I think it's incredibly versatile. It does not go bad quickly yeah. in the fridge. It's satisfying. Yeah, I love cabbage too. Um, let's do one more round. Do you want to go yeah. for a secret ingredient this time? Yes, yeah, secret ingredient. Okay. Well, up the stakes a little bit. All right, we've got coffee beans. Okay, my options are protein, vegetable, and and flavor. Okay, how about protein? Coffee beans are hard. I know. I okay, let's go with the protein. All right, we got chicken, chicken and coffee beans. Okay. So, I, I mean, I've got a really easy thing, but I hate going the easy route. But I would grind the coffee beans uh-huh. uh, and add them to uh, some smoked paprika, some cumin, some brown sugar, some black pepper, uh, some salt, maybe even a little coriander and make like a, a coffee rub. Uh-huh. And uh, rub the uh, rub the the chicken with the coffee rub. Um, Spatchcock it. Okay. So cut the back out. I love to cook chicken this way. And then you know spread it out. And then let's see what are we going to put under it. So we're going to roast that on top of. Sliced corn, um, butter beans, tomatoes. So kind of like a little uh, succotash. You're going to put okay. that at the bottom of your uh, your skillet. You're going to put your chicken on top. You're going to roast the chicken with the coffee rub on top of all of that. And then you're going to get some uh, some corn or flour tortillas, grill them, make you a little uh, coffee rub chicken uh, succotash uh, tortilla taco and put a little bit of herbaceous on top. Ooh, which is delicious. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I feel like, yeah. Uh, tortillas, you know, they're a handy thing when you have kids. Oh yeah. And everything sounds better as a taco. So Uh (laughs) yeah. Endless quesadillas. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. You said we're going to go the easy route. I thought you were just going to say, make a cup of coffee and cook the chicken. So I think what you did is is much better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was so great. Thank you so much for joining us, Vivian. Thank you. Thank you. I always love talking about cookbooks. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from This Will Make It Taste Good. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonmo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.